The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. The bottom line is, in answer to your question, Otto Wächter was part of the apparatus that was responsible for the killing of my grandfather's entire family. That was Philippe Sands talking about his investigation into a Nazi who disappeared. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Next Monday, the 8th of October, a new series begins on BBC Radio 4, entitled Intrigue, the Ratline. In it, the barrister and author Philippe Sands explores the story of Otto Wächter, a senior Nazi official who went on the run after the end of the Second World War. I paid a visit to BBC Broadcasting House a little while back, during the recording of the series, and afterwards I had a chance to speak to Philippe about the project. And I should mention that if you can't wait until Monday to listen to the series, it is already available to download as a BBC podcast. You can find it on the BBC website, as well as via other podcast providers. But anyway, here's how our conversation went. Philippe, could I ask you first of all about what the genesis of this series was and where where the project first came from? Well, it's a story with a a hinterland. Um, I suppose it all begins with research that I was doing for a book that I published a couple of years ago called East West Street, where I came across a character in in German-occupied Poland, Otto Wächter, uh, who was the governor first of Krakow and then of Lemberg when Poland was occupied. He is a minor character in East West Street. But in doing the research, I came to know his son, Horst. And the reason I came to know him is that unlike the son of Hans Frank, who was Otto Wächter's boss and the governor general of Nazi-occupied Poland, Hans Frank's son, Nicholas, hates his father. The first time I met Hans Frank's son, Nicholas, he said to me, Philippe, you need to understand, I'm against the death penalty in all cases, except for my father. And then Nicholas said to me, since you're interested in Lemberg and the governor of Lemberg, you will know the name Otto Wächter. Yes, I said. In which case, would you like to meet his son, Horst? Absolutely, I said. And so in, I think it was February 2012, we went together about 80 kilometres north of Vienna to Schloss Hagenberg, where he lives, and uh, spent a, a, you know, an overnighter, which was genial. He's a lovely man who loves his dad, who was a serious Nazi, which raises lots of interesting things. But the main thing was he had an extraordinary treasure trove of 
family documents, an archive of letters, of diaries, of sound recordings, of photographs, covering his parents' marriage from 1929 to 1949 throughout the period that I was focusing on for my book. So I came to know him, and as a side project for East West Street, I then made, with the director David Evans, uh, a BBC Storyville film called My Nazi Legacy, which essentially compared and contrasted these two different sons. It was about my relationship with these two different sons. And our relationship blossomed. We had different views about things, but we got on well. Everyone was treated respectfully and it, and it worked well. And the book came out, the film came out. I thought that was the end of the matter. You tie the ribbon at the end, done, move on to your life. One day I came into the BBC after that and met an editor, Hugh Levinson, uh, to pitch to him an idea about a BBC World Service series on the future of international law. I'm a professor at UCL. I teach international law. I'm a barrister. That's what I do. And I had a good conversation with Hugh. And then at the end of it, he said, are you doing anything else? I said, actually, I am. He said, what? I said, well, I've got this treasure trove, about 10,000 pages of documents, the Vechter family archive. And I'm working on it with the historian Lisa Jardine. Um looking at the letters between a husband and a wife, Charlotte Wächter and Otto Wächter, in particular in the period between 1945 and 1949, when Wächter, who was indicted for mass murder, disappeared. And we're reconstructing from the letters with four research assistants what actually happened. He escaped for three years in the mountains, descended, makes his way to Rome, is hoping to get to Argentina, dies in curious circumstances. And so uh, Hugh said, wow, that sounds interesting. Ever thought of making a podcast about it? I said, no, but let's talk more. I told him more. He said, I'm going to set an appointment for you with the commissioning editor, Radio 4, Mo, and um, you'll have 20 minutes to persuade him. A few weeks later, I meet Mo. I start. After eight minutes, Mo said, stop. It's commissioned. The whole thing's commissioned we're going to do it. Uh, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. So at that point, we're in 2016, summer of 2016. Uh, he found a producer, Gemma Newby, who you've just met, who I've developed a wonderful working relationship with. Um, and we've worked on it for two years. When I mentioned to my editors in New York and in London of East West Street at Alfred Knopf, in the US and at Weidenfeld and Nicholson here in London that I was working on this podcast, they said, you've got to turn it into a book. You've absolutely got to turn it into a book. And I said, really? You think there's scope for more? They said, absolutely. I said, well, the podcast will take a couple of years. A book always takes four or five years. It doesn't matter. They said, it doesn't matter if there's a podcast first. So here we are. <laughs> That's the exact genesis. So Otto Wechter is, he's a central figure really of, of this story to some extent anyway. Could you give us a bit more of a flavour of what his actions were? First of all, as a Nazi, within the Nazi apparatus? He was an early Nazi, born in 1901, joined the Nazi party in 1923 when he was at university in Vienna, uh, becomes a sort of party of Paratchik, a lawyer, a highly trained lawyer, a highly cultured man. Uh, in 1934, he gets involved in the killing of the Austrian chancellor, Dolphus, so he's a significant historical figure in Austria. Flees Austria, takes refuge in 
Germany uh, and comes back in 38 in March when Germany uh, occupies Austria and stands with Hitler on the Heldenplatz balcony on that famous day of which we know all the footage and the photographs. And is then subjected to a series of appointments. He's first a civil servant in Austria. He's then moved to be governor of Krakow. Uh, and he's then governor of Galicia and Lemberg. And then he is responsible as a military administrator in Italy in the last year of the war. So he is at the top table throughout the war and throughout the rise of the Nazi uh, party. Um, you know, direct access, constant access to Himmler, constant access to the top uh, brass uh, of the Nazi regime, and then he disappears. So he's a central figure uh, in occupied Poland and a central figure in the Austrian Nazi elite. To give you a sense of that, the first, if you like, um, Nazi ch chancellor of, of Austria after 1938 was a man called Arthur Seiss Inkwart. Uh, Arthur Seiss Inkwart uh, was made godfather to... Otto's son, Horst, who I've come to know. So it's that kind of intimate relationship. So how complicit was Otto then in, in the Holocaust and the other Nazi atrocities? Well, I mean, there is a difference of perspective between me on the one hand and Horst, his son, on the other. Actually, the first piece that I wrote for this was in the Financial Times uh, back in 2013, uh, a big piece with many photographs, um, in which I do a profile of Horst, and it had the title, My Father the Good Nazi. And Horst loves his father and believes there's no evidence to show that he was culpable of anything. And he was simply in, a pawn in the bigger system, swept up. My background's law, I know all about command responsibility, and he, for example, signed the document to create the Krakow ghetto. He was responsible for the entire civil administration of Krakow and District Galicia. He was responsible for organising labour, transportation. He knew everything that was going on. In my view, he's deeply implicated. He was indicted for mass murder. And if he had been caught, he would no doubt have been convicted. And I have no doubt he would have hanged. The son thinks otherwise. There's clearly some former Nazis who, who say that what the Nazis did were justifiable, so that they wouldn't even say the actions were wrong. So would I be right to say that Horst thinks that what the Nazis did was wrong, but that his yes. father wasn't culpable? Yes. I mean, Horst, Horst is very clear that what happened was terrible. What happened was criminal. Um, and in a sense, he sort of spent his life atoning for it. He became the assistant to the Jewish-Austrian painter Hudertwasser. And he's always welcomed me. I feel entirely comfortable around him. He's not a racist. He's not an anti-Semite. He's... A very decent, in my view, troubled person who is a victim, in a sense, of having been a six-year-old when the war ended and having seen his world collapse. And that's how I understand Horst. So he doesn't, for a moment, try to justify what happened or apologise for what happened. He thinks, you know, what happened was criminal and terrible. He just thinks there's no evidence tying his father to it. You've talked about how Otto disappears, and I imagine he was clearly pretty high on the, you know, the watch list of the Allied powers at this point. So how, how did he manage to get away? Well, you'll have to listen to the podcast um, uh, and then read the book, which will follow. Uh, I mean, I don't want to give away too much, but he managed to secret himself away in a very unexpected place, just to give you a titbit of excitement. He wasn't on his own. 
he was with a young Waffen-SS soldier. And amazingly, while we were making the series, that young soldier was still alive. And we interviewed him. And he's on one of the podcasts. It's one of the episodes is with him. And so we got a remarkable insight into what it meant to be on the run for four years, how you did it, how they hid, how they connected with the outside world, how they followed the Nuremberg trial. It, it was amazing to talk to him. It was the only interview he's ever given. And the condition for giving the interview, this is interesting, was that we do not ask a single question about what he did before May the 9th, 1945, because he remained, he was in his 90s when I met him, um, he remained fearful that he was going to be indicted. And I suppose that he could have been. I mean, it's, it's not, not out of the question. Because of the books he had on his shelf, we were able to work out which Waffen-SS division he was involved in. And I've done a bit of research. I think he has good reason to have a certain anxiety. But he was a very lowly person. He wasn't. He was 18, 19 years old. So um, his daughter was present throughout the interview and she made it clear that the moment we crossed a line and asked anything about what he did, the interview would be terminated. So um, the making of this radio series has been a remarkable privilege um, because, you know, to spend a few hours with someone like that with a recording device, you feel you're in the presence of history. He was with Vechter in the mountains and, and that is an amazing thing. His memory was crystal clear. He remembered aspects as though it was yesterday. And so you were there. Horst had brought to the meeting his mother's maps. And so we were able to identify the places that they met, the places that they hid. It was, it was really fascinating. I'm going to go there actually this summer. The series is called The Rat Line, which was to do with how the Nazis got out of Germany. So how does Otto's story fit into the idea of the rat line? Well, I mean, Otto is hunted. He's a hunted man. He's hunted by the Americans. He's hunted by the Poles. He's hunted by the Soviets. He's hunted by the Jews. He's hunted by some Austrians. He's a number one target for a lot of people. Um, so he is not safe. Um, and he needs to get away. He has connections with the Catholic Church. And as you know, the rat line was run with support from certain people in the Vatican to allow high-ranking Nazis to escape to Argentina. People like Mengele and Eichmann and Priebke followed the rat line. What this podcast series does, and I mean, you know, the book obviously can go into much more detail, is throw completely new light on what it was like to be inside the rat line as you're trying to get out. Because what we've got access to are Vechter's documents, his diaries, who he met, how he tried to get passports, how he got income, and the stories are absolutely breathtaking. Indicted war criminal on the run, picking up work as an extra, making films in Rome. You just could not invent it. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. 
Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. So Otto never makes it out of Italy. He died in mysterious circumstances in 1949. So through making this programme, have you come to any kind of conclusion about what really killed him? I mean, he dies suddenly and unexpectedly before he gets out. And one of the questions, but not the central question, is what happened to him. And there are different theories. And again, I don't want to give too much away. Um, In the making of the programme, we've explored some of those theories. We've explored the practices of the Americans and the Soviets in assassination. Did they do it? We've gone to see medics who are expert by reference to the indicators, the symptoms that he described, what could it have been? Was it consistent with poisoning? Could it have been an illness that he picked up? You know, I found myself at the Royal Free Hospital, close to where I live, talking to Britain's leading expert on liver disease to try to understand the science side. We spoke to Dame Sue Black, um, who's the country's leading forensics expert. What could we tell if he were to be exhumed? Is it worth doing it or not worth doing it? Um, So the aim of the programme is not to impose answers, but to give the the listener a chance to work out for themselves what they think could have happened and the processes of of uncovering. I mean, one of the things that I think people have liked about East-West Street, and I express gratitude to my editor in New York for pushing me in this direction, she said, don't just tell people what you discovered. Tell them how you found it. I'm a courtroom litigator. So for me, as interesting as the result is the hunt. How do you take a piece of information in a letter or a photograph and work out what really happened? What's that process? And and that's described in the podcast series. I mean, it's modelled in a sense on two very successful podcasts in the United States, Serial 1 and 2. And um, it puts the listener into the position of trying to work out for themselves. I think it's very important for Gemma and I not to impose on the listener our views and conclusions, but to open doors, allow people in and work out for themselves what's going on, what could the answers be, how do you work this out? Something that comes through in East West Street, obviously, is your personal connection to some of the events that we're talking about here. So how did that influence the, the programme, the fact that, you know, you had family who were caught up in some of these events? Yeah, no, it's a curious situation because um, Horst's father, Otto, is, you know, governor of Galicia, uh, where my grandfather's entire family from where he was born lived and perished. Out of the 80 or so people who came from Lemberg and the surrounding areas, uh, I thought, in fact, there had been at the time of writing no survivors, except for my grandfather. But curiously, in the writing of East West Street, 
I have never spoken about this publicly. I received a letter from a professor in University of California at Los Angeles last October who said he'd bought East West Street and at page 23 there was a reference to his grandfather. And from that, uh, he worked out that his father was my grandfather's first cousin. And the two of them had survived, but they didn't know that the other had survived and they never made contact. So they lived for another 45 years, each of them, 50 years in the case of my grandfather, without knowing that there was another survivor. But the bottom line is, in answer to your question, Otto Wächter was part of the apparatus that was responsible for the killing of my grandfather's entire family. You know, his, his mother, his siblings, his, you know, vast numbers of people. So there's a very personal connection but it's years later, it's decades later. I, Horst is not responsible for what his father did and we're able to talk about it and, you know, in a very grown-up and sensible way and explore the different options. And, and, and Horst plainly feels the sadness for it. He's often expressed that to me. So although he defends his father in a certain way, I, I don't necessarily, although at times perhaps I do, feel that his defence of his father is an attack on on what happened to my family. But there is that tension. There is a tension in the podcast. There's a tension in the series because there's personal connections on both sides. I'm a grandson. He's a son. We come to it with our family backgrounds. But we're very careful to respect the other and very careful not to impose him on me and me on him uh, critiques or attacks that are difficult. And something that came through on the parts of the episode that I've heard is this kind of dichotomy between the man Otto who you know you hear letters from him and his wife and his son who admires him a lot and then this idea of a man who is also responsible for mass mass death so how is it possible to square these two aspects of a character someone can be a a cultured loving man but at the same time a, a killer I mean it's one of the great mysteries of the Nazi period Hans Frank was a deeply cultured man uh you know, concert-level pianist. Um, so was Otto Wächter, so was Charlotte Wächter. How do we explain that people highly educated, highly intelligent, deeply cultured, can become involved? It's one of the great mysteries. One of the consequences of their backgrounds is that it's not correct, in my view, to simply label them as monsters. It's much, much more complex And through this podcast series and through the book and through their correspondence, through the letters, through their diaries, you get this sense of disconnect, sort of double identity of Otto Wächter. On the one hand, um, someone involved in the most heinous crimes. On the other hand, an incredibly loving father and husband with a special relationship with his wife, who's beloved by his wife. And I think one of the things that Gemma and I wanted to do with this series was illustrate that disconnect and cause in the listener difficulties and challenges. And that's part of the reason I asked Stephen Fry to read the letters of um, Otto Wächter. Stephen Fry has an extraordinary voice, a voice of great warmth, you empathise when you hear his voice on the radio or a, on a Harry Potter thing. You know, there's the generation of kids who can't sleep at night without listening to Stephen Fry's voice. And I wanted Stephen Fry to read 
the letters of a man who was indicted for mass murder because it induces in the listener a feeling of empathy and warmth. And then suddenly you've got to tell yourself, actually, I shouldn't be feeling so... You know, he's writing about his sadness, he's writing about his plight, he's writing about being on the run, he's writing about all of these things. And yet the man, the voice sounds wonderful. He's intelligent, he's warm, he's loving. Um, and it's that disconnect that I think, in a sense, is the beating heart of this podcast series. But it also is relevant for explaining history. East-West Street was very much focused on the idea that individuals make a difference on the good and on the bad. And, you know, the tectonic plates that shift and cause great historical moments actually is not a thesis that I buy very easily. Individuals make and change history. Uh, history doesn't make and change itself. And to understand why certain events happen, I think you've got to go deep beneath the surface and understand why certain individuals did what they did at a particular moment in time. And their private correspondence helps, I think. You mentioned also um, Otto's letters to his wife, and clearly his son was, was too young to really understand what was happening during the yeah. war, but how far was his wife aware of the kind of activities Otto was involved in, and, and do we know whether she approved of what, of what he was doing? Well, she was herself deeply anti-Semitic. That comes across in the letters. Um, much more so than him, actually, in the correspondence. So there's early stuff, you know, in the correspondence from the 20s and the 30s before the real horrors began. You know, I met a Jew in a train or type of thing. Um, and she knew exactly what was going on. You know, anyone who lived in Vienna after March 1938 knew exactly what was going on. Her husband's job was to remove Jews from public office. That was, you know, from April 1938. And so I've been through, not it's not in the podcast, but I've done it for the book, I've identified three or four people who lost their jobs. You know, the chief librarian at the National Library, a chief judge, a prosecutor, people who had fought in the First World War for the Austro-Hungarian Empire um, and who were just removed from their positions. And I've got Otto Wechter's letters where he removes them and tells them, sorry, you, your job ceases tomorrow. She was living with him. She knew exactly what he was doing. And there aren't references to the day job in the correspondence. But it is impossible that she cannot have known what her husband was doing. Um, you know, she was in Krakow. She was in Lemberg. Um, and she cannot not have known. But there is no indication except for a few of the letters where reference is made to things that are going on, in which he signalled to her, people have to be shot. I've got to deal with the great Jewish action. I've got to do this, that or the other. There are enough little signals in the letters to allow... I mean, I look at it not as a historian, but as a forensic litigating lawyer. So for me, it's not the question of showing whether she knew as a historical matter, but could I prove in a court of law that she knew Absolutely, without doubt, no question. And coming back to Horst, like you say, you can prove, you can prove all these things, and you can prove that she knew, and you can prove his involvement. And Horst sounds sounds like an intelligent man, but yet he's kind of willfully blind potentially to what his father did. There's a moment 
if you're interested in this, you should go to go and watch My Nazi Legacy. And early on in the documentary, we interview him and he starts to weep. He describes his sixth birthday in 1945. He's born in 39, April 45, just before the end of the war. And he describes the war coming to an end, the Germans losing, the Nazis losing. My world came to an end and he cries. And I think to understand Horst, he's like a little boy who has spent the rest of his life trying to reconstruct what has been lost. And I've spoken to psychoanalysts and psychologists about it. It's not malign. It's a sense of vulnerability. That's how I see it. That's how I explain it. At the end of the war, at the time that Otto was escaping, there were lots of people on his tail, but there also seemed like there were quite a few people actually willing to help him. You talked about the Catholic Church, Argentina. At this point, the Third Reich's finished. What's motivating people then to want to assist former, former war criminals? You will be astonished by what emerges. You will be astonished at the role of the British, the Americans in working with former Nazis. It, 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 again, I don't want to give it all away, but um, you get a sense of the significance of big power politics creating a context in which you make a pact with the devil or the former devil in order to attack the new devil. So there were many people willing to help, um, and not just in the Catholic Church, but in the upper echelons of the US and other administrations, because a new enemy had come on the scene, and that was the Soviets. And against that background, um, Otto Wächter finds himself in Rome pincered between the Soviets and the Americans on one side or on two sides uh, and under, you know, the watchful eye of the Vatican being hunted by yet others. It's a sort of remarkable image, actually. I mean, he's just, and he's, you know, by that point, an unfortunate and rather sad, lonely figure. And then we have to remember what he did. And actually, as you reference in the programmes, he was not the only former Nazi who was being courted by some of these powers. This isn't an isolated incident. No, I mean, there's a, there's a big and deep history. There's a well-known history of the United States recruiting German and Nazi scientists in the, in the atom bomb project, um, you know, and in relation to the Cold War activities. And there was an effort by the Soviets and the Americans as the Cold War ratcheted up, which is the period we're talking about, to recruit to recruit the brightest and the best, and they did recruit. Um, and that that comes up in the podcast because we trace through one of the stories with an American uh, to see to see what happened with the rat lines, and it leads into the 1980s when you know a new American administration had to work out, my word, did we collaborate with the, with the Nazis, and how extensive was our collaboration with the Nazis. Otto Vector got caught up in that, and he probably died in the context of that struggle. That was Philippe Sands. Intrigue, the rat line, begins on Monday the 8th of October on BBC Radio 4 at 1.45pm. And as I mentioned earlier, you can download an extended podcast version of the series now. Philippe's award-winning historical memoir, East West Street, is out now published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And you can read a version of this interview in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale and also includes articles on Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Cromwell, Winston Churchill, the Anglo-Saxons, plus a special supplement which explores the centenary 
of the end of the First World War. Look out for it in all good retailers and our many digital formats now. And that is about all for today, but do join us again on Monday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 